Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part three of our series based on Jerry Bledsoe's New York Times best-selling book, Bitter Blood. For part three, listen, things are going to get really hairy this episode, uh-huh. so I don't want to do a teaser and give away my milk for free. Okay. You, uh-huh. Nick, yeah. ask too many questions, and I don't want to give you any ammo. Okay. So we're just going to do it. You're already invested. You know, know all this stuff about the family tree and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're in it, baby. Yeah, so... Tough nuts to you. Uh, Hey, look, we want to thank Cecily for signing up for our Patreon. And if you are out there and you're listening to this podcast and you're just like, wow, Nick and Muriel really put in the work. They're they're masters of the craft. And I want to support them because I happen to know that they're just like two people that make a podcast in the closet of Nick's mom's house. You know what I mean? You know, like I think I want to give them $5 a month and I want to unlock some exclusive episodes. Then what you should do is visit patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders or download that Patreon app and search for Muriel's Murders. Either way, you grab a credit card and then you're like Cecily, man. You unlock exclusive episodes. You support the podcast. All right. All what right. a great world we live great in. Great you know? pitch. Amazing. Now we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so remember, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kinds of things, just go listen to a different podcast. We're going to joke. We're going to curse. And if you don't like that kind of stuff, just rewatch old episodes of Sesame Street. That's wholesome. You can learn things. That's a great thing to do with your time. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. Okay, Nick is going to do my favorite thing ever and do his recap of part two. Go ahead, Nikki. Well, Muriel was holding off on telling us who the kissing cousins were in an attempt to be mysterious. You know what I'm talking about. Those kissing cousins we heard about in the beginning of part one who blow up in an SUV full of weapons and prepper-esque <laughs> survival supplies. But part two made it pretty clear who they were. The lady cousin is none other than Susie of the North Carolina Sharp Dynasty, and the gentleman is Fritz, also of the North Carolina Sharp (laughs) Dynasty. We know a lot about Susie, like how she spent the first 30 or so years of her life being cruel and or abusive to her little brother and eventually her to own two little boys. Uh, She's prone to heated screaming matches and ice cold grudges. She loves racism and she hates her mother-in-law and (laughs) ex-husband. She endangered her young sons by taking them on an unhinged short-lived move to Taiwan and promptly returned to her home turf to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis by her famous yet most likely a scammer doctor uncle. This doctor uncle also loves racism and hates honestly diagnosing his patients. The doctor uncle is a big fan of telling people that they are sick with an incurable disease and then curing it with a mega dose of vitamins. This doctor is married to Susie's mother's sister and they have a son named Fritz. Part two, uh, 
part what am i right what i write <laughs> part two left concluded that's a weird sentence <laughs> Muriel concluded part two with our first bit of Fritz trivia that he has been paying some late night secret visits to his first cousin, Susie. Besides that, we don't know anything about this guy except for about his dad. So with that, (laughs) Muriel brings us part three. So Florence Newsome had a problem. Her daughter, Susie, had had a rough go of things, right? Mm -hmm. Her marriage fell apart. She ran off to Taiwan to learn Mandarin, flunked out of language school, got her kids super sick, had a terrifying run with government surveillance, got diagnosed with MS. The professors in her graduate program were conspiring against her. Her ex-husband was in the mob, maybe. (laughs) And it just went on and on. And now... Unfortunately, Florence was pretty sure Susie was doing it with her weird first cousin, Fritz Klenner. (laughs) So it started Uh when Susie started going to his father, Dr. Fred Klenner, for vitamin injections to help with her MS, right? Right. And then Fritz stayed around, right? After his messy divorce in 1981 and what the family believed was some kind of mental breakdown The young Dr. Fritz left Duke Medical School, where he was a top student, to take a break and work in his dad's Reedsville Clinic. Okay. And since then, for the last few years, he'd been lurking around Susie with alarming frequency. At first, it was late night phone calls, presumably between... Two cousins going through difficult divorces. Yeah. And then it slowly developed into something that made the well-regarded Newsome and Sharp families raise their eyebrows up and over the tops of their heads. (laughs) But regardless of suspicions, the family line was officially, no one panic, it's just cousins helping cousins. Mm -hmm. But Fritz was coming over to Florence and Bob's house a lot. And he was coming over very late at night, slipping in after midnight, tapping on the windows to be let in like a sexy cousin house cat, (laughs) fraying Florence Newsom's nerves. And when it got to the point where Florence was waking up mornings to find Fritz sleeping on her couch, Mm -hmm. her eyebrows were so raised, she didn't have any brow left on her face. (laughs) Are you just so thrilled with yourself? Do you just love? Do you just love your writing? Yes. <laughs> and nobody else does. Uh, uh, you're amazing. And that wasn't all. <laughs> Write as if no one's listening. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't all. After uh-huh. Fritz entered the picture, Susie started talking about some pretty out there stuff. You know, she a lot of what Susie said—that's the wildest was Mm -hmm. like stuff she told her divorce lawyer so just you know keep that in mind so Susie told her divorce lawyer that a friend of the family who was in the FBI told her that Tom was involved in the criminal underworld as a gambler Uh and wrapped up in something involving drugs and was just about to get caught up in an FBI sting operation intended to bust some international smugglers <laughs> right lots of moving parts yeah all these hikes he's been taking around the mountaintops and all those uh 
peaks he's been whatever no, no. you know it was the italians okay <laughs> it always is we got you man everywhere you go we're coming for, for you for Susie, the mob thing was super obvious the dentists that tom was working with in albuquerque were italian armand uh-huh. and robert gianni remember I, I, i've been freaking drooling waiting for you to bring them back also uh-huh. just to throw this out here i have to make some of these like like these parts a little shorter so I had to leave some people out Uh right but a New Mexico judge who had given Tom like a favorable ruling at some point in a custody battle in 1982 Mm -hmm. had the last name Francini (laughs) so also I skipped over this but during that custody battle Mm -hmm. in 1982 Tom's mother Dolores the scourge of Kentucky had pulled this dumb stunt Asking an Italian lawyer friend, this Chicago guy named Leonard Timpone, uh, to call the psychologist working with Susie and the boys to try to intimidate him before he testified at the custody trial. So this guy from Chicago like called up the oh, psychologist. Oh, he went through with it? Mm-hmm. And like... North Carolina and was like, yeah, hey, I, I need to tell you. Like, and he's really loud. And he has like, like that stereotypical like Chicago thing. <laughs> Two, three times, whatever that is. Uh, and uh, so, don't like, stop now. Keep going. What other examples you got? That was two. You have to do rules of comedy. I, I want the third. smelts. You got smelts. Gabagool. <laughs> okay. Too far. <laughs> you could have, you know, I said three. You went on that fourth. I know. You know? I know. Take it out. <laughs> I felt it. All right. So anyway, that blew up uh-huh. in Dolores's face. Nothing really came from it. Mm. Like the psychologist was definitely not intimidated and then brought it up at the trial. <laughs> uh, but for Susie, mm-hmm. all that solidified was this network of Italians mm-hmm. was behind the custody case in which she believed she had been railroaded. Got it. Right. Yeah, Sure. And Susie, you know, aside from telling people that Tom was in the mafia, she was telling friends, you know, Fritz made her feel really protected and safe. Mm -hmm. But Florence was worried that creepy cousin Fritz was whispering in Susie's ear, feeding her already paranoid daughter Mm -hmm. kind of more stuff to be paranoid about. Just more stuff's coming out. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So at Christmas 1982, Susie finally got her divorce payout. It was $23,000, like close to about 70K in today's money, Mm -hmm. along with this monthly child support. And a few weeks later in January, Florence got home from visiting her elderly mother-in-law in in Winston-Salem. This is a woman named Hattie, and it's Bob's mother. Okay. To find her family was the center of some neighborhood gossip. Yep. A neighbor pulled Florence aside to tell her that every time they go out of town on the weekends to visit Hattie, Uh and every time she leaves, Fritz drives up and spends the entire weekend at the house Mm -hmm. with Susie, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So... Obviously, the tension and the pressure's building, and during a weekend family breakfast, things came to a head. No one knows exactly what happened, but basically, Fritz was at a Saturday morning breakfast, his presence obviously grinding Florence's gears. Mm -hmm. Susie mentioned someone she knew who had purchased a chow chow, like those big fluffy dogs originally bred in China. Yeah, those things are awesome. And Bob Newsom said something vaguely negative about the breed, right? Like they also kind of have a 
stereotype of being a dr- aggressive dogs. Yeah, they, yeah, I think they are. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. I'm just abiding by that stereotype. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, like, yeah, they obviously they are. They bite. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> Uh, so he said something negative about uh-huh. the breed, and Susie just lost her damn mind. She was screaming and like shouting at everybody, and then she leaves the house with Fritz and the boys, scandalously spending the night with Fritz in some undisclosed location. Mm. So the next day, Susie and Florence have it out. There may have been hitting involved or something, but in the end, Susie left the home Permanently, I'm saying like there were rumors that they were they might have gotten into like a physical fight. a mother daughter fisticuffs, right? But yeah. nobody has really said exactly what happened. Uh-huh. Um, but Susie left the family home permanently, blocking Florence and Bob from seeing the boys and not telling anyone where she was going. And because <laughs> the cousin thing was yeah. so humiliating, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Florence and Bob wouldn't talk about the blow up, so no one knew what was going on at all. They didn't want to say anything about the tension in the home right uh, it is it's just it is particularly uh, a certain je ne sais quoi for someone to be like oh that 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 kind of dog is aggressive and then for you just to be like no they're not and then you freak out and then you come back the next day and like beat up your mom <laughs> i thought you were talking about me and i was like i don't think i do that <laughs> See, that's the problem with these true crime things, man. You just start seeing yourself in every villain. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's or true. Or do, do people do that? Well, okay. you are like very impressionable. I like telling you true, type, true crime <laughs> stories. <laughs> All, All right. right. Yeah, so yeah. Susie took the divorce settlement money and rented a two-bedroom apartment in, a, in nearby Greensboro, North Carolina. So she was pretty close to her parents' house, but mm-hmm. just nobody knew where she was. Mm-hmm. And it was an apartment that she had paid the deposit on four days before the big blowout without telling anyone. So mm-hmm. there's something about that that feels kind of like she had already been. She was already on the way out. Secretly. But also, like, you're living with your mom and you get an apartment. It's like, hey, mom, I got an apartment in Greensboro. Yeah. But, like, before the fight, she had already kept all that stuff secret. Totally. Yeah. So Susie cut off the entire Sharp clan and fully threw herself in with the black sheep Klenner family. So mm-hmm. at this point, it's, you know, Fritz and his family, his mother, that's where she's going to go for Sunday dinners. And all their little pamphlets about the KKK or whatever they <laughs> have going the on. You know, man, yeah. there's a whole lot, a whole lot of stuff in that house. Right. We'll come to find out. Okay. Even more than that. All right. So for their part, Bob and Florence didn't have much time to process what happened. Their son, Rob Newsom, moved his family into their home almost as soon as Susie left. Rob, who had been an assistant state attorney general before Mm -hmm. working for a prestigious oil company, had developed a crippling alcohol problem that I think he I believe he said was kind of connected to this idea of like when he was a kid wanting to prove that he was like rough and tumble with the neighborhood kids. Yeah, totally. And like trying to get Mm -hmm. into some sort of like good old boy sort of zone. Well, it sounds like he was also uh, prone to serious stress and anxieties as a little kid, if not straight pushed into it by Susie giving him a stomach ulcer by the age of five. Yeah. You know what Maybe I mean? He's a sensitive guy, you know, I don't know, but anyway, well, I mean, we don't know why, but yeah. 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 So he developed this alcoholism. He had been fired from his job. Mm-hmm. He had lost everything and was Ooh. forced to move his family because he had three kids and his wife back in with his parents. And this is like early 80s here. Yeah. Right now mm-hmm. we are in 1984. 
1984, very early 1984, so like January. Oh, really? Like maybe right around the time I was born. Oh yeah! You know? Oh, so cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, attentions were turned to the next Newsom life explosion, and Susie sort of just remained in the ether estranged. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually, Rob was actually able to make c- contact with her around this time, like maybe a couple months later. But in the time she'd been gone, Susie had bought a ferocious, poorly trained chow chow. Uh-huh. And it was so like crazy and snapping and barking that Rob refused to come inside her apartment out of fear. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, good. She just made her point. Uh, Susie did did make contact with her namesake, Big Judge Susie. Mm-hmm. But she spent the entire reunion ranting about how Tom was in the mafia. <laughs> So we're going to go back Mm -hmm. and spend a little time with my lady, Dolores Lynch, Scourge of Kentucky. Okay. Now, I make that joke. She was a little petite, tightly wound ball of fury. But just to be fair, she definitely was loved by many. Uh She was feared by many, but she had a lot of family and friends. Very sassy. A lot of people liked her, you know. Yeah, right. Um, And I just love her bold outrageousness. There's something about the way all these stories unfolded like traditional marriages that in the case of most of the Sharp and Newsom and Lynch pairings ended with women having like a million babies and then moving all over the country to support their husband's careers. And mm-hmm. like it worked for some women totally. It annoyed others. But for Dolores, by the by the time she and Chuck made their last move to Kentucky. Yeah. She was like filled with a godlike wrath. And I just, <laughs> I read her as some mythical creature created by thousands of like moments of irritation <laughs> swallowed to keep the peace. Like whatever it is, she's just yeah. like, I'm here. <laughs> so uh-huh. by the early 1980s, uh-huh. Dolores was in her 60s, compact, a short haircut with bangs and a pair of big old thick framed 80s style glasses. Dolores was a conservative church-going lady who dug Jesus as much as she did church drama. Mm -hmm. When she ultimately landed in Kentucky, she belonged to Grace Episcopal. That's a church so conservative and old school that it literally disaffiliated itself from the diocese over like a new prayer book. Yeah. So this is Dolores's kind of church. (laughs) Right. Uh, However... Uh Dolores left Grace Episcopal in 1969 because she said the new priest was too greasy. (laughs) She she attended a church closer to her house, but left there after trying to stage a failed coup against their leadership. Uh And then she returned to Grace in 1979, which was now a 17-mile one-way trip from her house. But the greasy priest had finally left and Dolores had made her point. So it was perfect. Okay, great. I feel like she has more in common with Susie than she wants to admit. Can you imagine some lady? I just think the idea that she's driving 17 miles one way to spite another church after she spited a first church. She's like Uh, into church. I just think it's so funny. Yeah, anything to get away from the grease. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it's just like. You know, it just doesn't feel very Christian. <laughs> but I just love, like, this is, 
going back and forth between these churches. Uh, church was a significant part of Dolores' social, social life and ritual. Mm-hmm. She was always a force at coffee hour, a chatty extrovert. And every Sunday after church, her daughter Janie would be waiting at home with coffee and donuts. They had this whole ritual going. Dolores was also popular at the local community theater. Not what? surprisingly, she, she had actress? a flair for acting. Oh, wow. People really liked her acting. This is your little spirit animal lady. So Chuck and Dolores built their final house on four acres on the grounds of a country club. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful. There was like a creek winding through the front yard, rolling hills, mm-hmm. sycamore trees, horse farms. The first perfect place to relegate your husband to the basement. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the asphalt driveway went downhill over a creek on a wooden bridge and mm-hmm. then uphill past the house and this wrought iron gate so they called it the house on covered bridge road um and the house we've talked about before is very big right it's a pink ranch style house uh two stories 14 rooms gorgeous it ended up looking a little like a ramada inn (laughs) but very nice uh and dolores who was obsessed with security, had it wired with complex security systems that went off at the drop of a hat. Mm -hmm. Um, She installed alarms, backup alarms. She had phones in almost every room, even the bathrooms. And she had a (laughs) battery-powered CB radio in case the phones and power went out. And she even slept with a police scanner by the side of her bed. See, she's paranoid too. Her and Susie, man. I know. She just was like very like fortress right yeah after a successful but brutal career as a ge executive chuck decided to retire chuck dolores's husband right decided to retire early at the age of 63 in 1980 which sent dolores into a spite spiral she told her friends she was sure chuck retired just so he could ruin her life and destroy her (laughs) hobbies she rage quit her piano lessons in protest of his retirement uh-huh. and permanently covered the piano in a black mourning cloth. <laughs> <laughs> this is not made there up. There will be no more song and cheer. <laughs> this is not made up. Uh-huh. Uh, and basically, she couldn't stand Chuck being around. He smoked, right? So she hated his smoking so much, which I get that <laughs> she got like a hundred no smoking signs and put them all over the house and the yard. <laughs> okay, so now it's really starting to look like a Ramada Inn. <laughs> Dolores was uh, heavily involved in the Little Colonel Theater, which Chuck thought was absolutely ridiculous and hated. Yeah. And at cast parties, after an appearance from her dour husband, Dolores would loudly complain about him and on at least one occasion announce to the room that she wished he would die. <laughs> So it's just like the cast parties from like eighth grade theater things. No difference. Dolores is made Helen Stewart would later say it wasn't that shocking to her that Dolores would announce something like that at a party. She'd heard Dolores wish for Chuck's death hundreds of times. (laughs) As for Chuck, between Dolores' onslaught on his very being and a deep sense of boredom after losing his high octane career, he started filling his days with volunteer work to get out of the house. So, of course, that finally chilled Dolores out. Just kidding. She told everyone Chuck was having an affair with a woman she nicknamed Moist Pearl. (laughs) (laughs) When her daughter Jane I hope none of this has anything to do with the with the murders or deaths or whatever happens. It all does. So just keep in mind. But it would be just be so funny if at the end I was like, what did that whole (laughs) 
that whole thing about Dolores and the theater and the moist pearl have to do that. You're like nothing, but that was secretly what I, I want to do this whole podcast for this one section. A lot of what I do is that to be uh, honest. I just, yeah. you know, I think I can kind of weave it together and justify it, but most of it's just stuff that I like about stories. Uh, sorry, Nick. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. After the Moist Pearl thing, her daughter Janie moved back to Kentucky to start dental school, and Dolores enlisted her help to investigate this affair with Moist Pearl. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women found out, they followed Chuck and found out he was just driving to a local golf course to stare out at the green for hours and be depressed. Oh, God. Oh, Chuck. Yeah, I, Chuck. Poor Chuck. I know. I'm, I'm like, kind of like, giving Dolores this credit, but Chuck got the raw end of this deal, I think. Yeah. Anyway, uh, after Tom's late 1982 custody ruling, Dolores was madder than a hornet stuck up in her pink house with her husband drinking himself to death in the basement. Dolores had been thwarted at every turn, enlisting this blustery Italian lawyer friend to intimidate Jim and John's psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned out to be a stupid and ineffective, and it earned her a full banning from Susie. She wasn't uh-huh. allowed to even speak to the boys on the phone, and everything she sent to the boys was thrown into the trash unopened, with Susie telling the boys Dolores's cookies were probably poisoned. Damn. So on top of that... Tom was fixing to marry his former dental assistant, Kathy Anderson, and Dolores, the woman who couldn't stand Susie for being elitist, was completely up in arms about how Kathy Anderson was far below her family's stature. (laughs) Poor thing. Madder than a wet hen. She just couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. I looked up a bunch of uh, Southern sayings. (laughs) Madder than a wet hen? That's a thinker. (laughs) But despite <laughs> Dolores' scowling, Tom's second wedding was set for the summer of 1983. Mm-hmm. In June 1983, Janie, Dolores, and Chuck were preparing to fly to Albuquerque for the wedding. Uh, Chuck personally prepared for the flight by attempting to stop his now constant drinking long enough to navigate the airport and board the plane. Unfortunately, he immediately developed uh, that extreme form of alcohol withdrawal called delirium tremens and had to be hospitalized. Chuck almost died and remained hospitalized for weeks. He missed the wedding and no one visited him in the hospital. Oh man. So he was not close with Tom. I guess that always struck me. Like, you know, reading this, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand that piece of it, but I guess not. I don't. I don't know if Chuck was like this really awesome, nice dude, but it's definitely yeah. a pretty crappy way to land the end of your life. You know? Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Jim and John finally made their first summer trip to New Mexico—a hard-fought battle for Tom. So. Three weeks after Tom and Kathy's wedding, the boys arrived filthy and sickly looking. Their fingernails were long, their teeth were dirty, and their luggage came packed with medicine and vitamins that Mm. made them nauseous. When Tom was at work and they were alone with Kathy, they were really skittish and they were parroting all this weird stuff about like their dad and Dolores and Chuck and Janie and Florence and Bob, like they're all mean and dumb, sort of repeating sentences by rope. Like, uh-huh. like uh, daddy was a jerk. They were mean to us. They kicked us out of the house. Just like this sort yeah. of like 
different like alternative line of thinking right yeah it seems like the the brainwashing that's been happening right yeah but after they settled in and tom threw out all the vitamins and started taking them camping and hiking and taking summer adventures the kids started loosening up Mm -hmm. and after a while, they described what life was like with Susie. They weren't allowed to play sports. They weren't allowed to even play outside. The only friend time that Susie allowed was whatever they could fit in at school. And they talked a lot about Uncle Fritz. Mm. So back in Kentucky, after Tom and Kathy's wedding, Chuck came back home from the hospital to the basement where he was nursed by Dolores's maid, Helen, until a few months later in November 1983. Dolores brought green beans and scrambled eggs to the basement for Chuck's dinner, but Chuck was already dead, Mm. making Dolores a very wealthy woman. In May of 1984, despite his daily regimen of vitamins, Dr. Fred Klenner also died. At the funeral, Fritz told everyone that he was going to take over his father's clinic as soon as he passed his medical boards, but the test had been postponed to honor his father. Mm -hmm. Fritz didn't allow anyone at the graveside, not even his mother, and he was the only person to witness his father's burial. Fritz started taking over his father's practice that spring, but he didn't go long before the clinic was quietly shut down. By what, state authorities? Because he's not an actual doctor? (laughs) So the boys showed up to their 1984 summer visit to Albuquerque, the second one, again, sickly and thin, and this time with little fresh scars on their faces. Uncle Fritz had been cutting out their moles. And... Jim and John had a lot to say. Uncle Fritz gave them shots in their arms. Uncle Fritz took them camping in the mountains on Thanksgiving, and it got so cold they thought they were going to freeze to death. Uncle Fritz has an Uzi. Plus, they didn't have beds at their mom's house, so they got to sleep on the floor. So Albuquerque... <laughs> what is going on? Right? Uh, so this is all this stuff that he's yeah, telling Tom. Right, and he's I like it. taking yeah. it in, right? Yeah. Albuquerque summer, again, was this ritual of hiking, fishing, camping, fun, rumpus times. And the only real thing they hear from Susie during the trip is they came home once from a trip to the Grand Canyon to find a package from her. Two shirts for the boys with a picture of Clint Eastwood looking over the barrel of a gun and the words make my day printed underneath them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom threw those in the garbage. In the summer of 1948... Dolores was newly rich, but still the same old gal, a frugal coupon clipping child of the Depression who thrifted clothes and made balls of soap out of the old used slivers. The only (laughs) thing she spent money on were her two Yorkshire Terriers. She spoiled them to death, custom clothes and furniture. She washed them with Estee Lauder soaps. Uh, She fed them steak, all that kind of stuff. Uh And she was also obsessed with teaching them how to talk. Uh, convinced one day they'd say I love you or mama uh, the oldest oh. one <laughs> the oldest one had to be prescribed uh. tranquilizers for anxiety uh, when her longtime friend and maid Helen raised her prices for the first time in like decades from $25 a day to $30 a day Dolores let her go she said she couldn't afford it and then after a few months, Helen relented and came back for $25 a day. And Dolores literally called her friends to brag she got Helen back at her old rate. <laughs> Come on, Dolores. 
<sighs> so in the summer of 1984, mm-hmm. around the same time, Tom's sister Janie Lynch was just finishing up dental school. Janie was 5'2 and a size 3. She had long, curly brown hair and dark eyes, a very youthful-looking 39. Janie was good nurtured. She was known by the family as being like very sweet, charming, mm-hmm. witty, academically gifted. She was a brown belt in karate that she learned for defense purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had never married, and she was on her third career in 1984. So she had like gotten her first degree in education, she was a teacher, then she worked as a speech pathologist, and then in 1980, she moved back to Kentucky, closer to her mother, and started dentistry school. So right, now we're about, like her brother. Yeah, exactly. So now we're about four years later. So Dolores was obsessive about Janie. When she enrolled in dental school and took like student housing nearby, Dolores showed up with Helen in tow to clean, paint, and decorate the entire apartment for uh, Dolores had a key. And along with her meals that she would make for Chuck, she would cook and drop off breakfast, lunch, and dinner daily to Janie's place. Damn. And then clean her apartment for her and stock her fridge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although Janie, I know, I don't really get the yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although Janie had never been married, mm-hmm. uh, there was interest from men. She was beautiful, but the relationships all fizzled out on her end mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, in dental school, Janie started, I just, there's all this Italian stuff this time. I'm, I, now I feel like I'm just being terrible. Yeah. Uh, in dental school, Janie started dating a boy 14 years younger than her, an Italian from New York. We learn. have that effect. I know. We have that effect. A young Italian man. Then older ladies love us. Dolores was not pleased her daughter was dating what she called a Kennedy lover. She told a friend, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. Janie has dragged home a New York street Italian. <laughs> Too greasy. Uh, and towards the end of 1984, that relationship seemed to also have ran mm-hmm. its course. Mm-hmm. After four years of dental school, being on the cusp of graduating, she was having second thoughts about dentistry altogether. Janie's health had been, she'd been kind of dealing with some health stuff. She was tired all the time. She was kind of depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors said, you might be anemic. Maybe you're stressed out from school. So Janie decided that she was going to graduate. But rather than start a practice right away, after graduation, she planned to move back in with her mother and just regroup. So in mid-July, Janie wrote her boyfriend a sort of cold, fade-out breakup letter on Thursday, January 19th, Janie moved her stuff into Dolores's house. On Friday, she said goodbye to all her friends in the student housing area. On Saturday, she ran errands with her mother. And afterwards, they went to a play at Little Colonel Theater. And the next morning, Sunday morning, while her mom was at church, Janie skipped her morning run for donuts and was murdered in the pink house on Covered Bridge Road. No. On Saturday. You know what's... You know what I... I knew, I knew it. I was like, why are we talking about Janie so much? Why are you talking about what happened Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Muriel. That's how true crime is. I know, but I still don't think that you're a good person. I know, I know. On Sunday, July 22nd, 1984, on the last morning, Dolores Lynch was seen alive. It was a little cloudy and even... You said Dolores Lynch. I know. But we're talking about... Didn't, isn't Janie the one? Janie died. Also, Dolores is about to die. Miriam, what? <laughs> Just 
I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't realize it'd be so surprising to you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. So Sunday, Janie gets murdered in the pink house. Okay, go. Keep going. All right. Okay, so then. On Sunday, July 22nd, 1984, on the last morning, Dolores Lynch was seen alive. It was a little cloudy, and even at 80 degrees, a nice break from the summer heat. In the parking lot of Grace Episcopal, Dolores talked with a church friend all about her son, Tom, and how he was coming from Albuquerque, New Mexico, with his two sons and his new wife, Kathy, for a summer visit. At 10.30 that morning after church, Dolores stopped for gas for her riding lawnmower, and after that, she drove home where she was shot three times in the back while attempting to enter the house through the garage. With Janie's dead body already inside the house? We're going to get to everything, okay? Okay. Dolores always took the phone off the hook when she went out to protect her house from robbers, right? Who she says, if you take your phone off the hook and robbers who call get a busy signal that will indicate someone's home, right? So if she's out, she usually takes all the phone off the hook so nobody can call. And this is the old school phone system. So if you do one phone off the hook, it means the whole phone lines are down. So then you take your phone off the hook, you're downstairs, suddenly a robber's there, you go to call the police, you can't do it because the phone's off the hook. Ooh, that's a good point. But that's not what happened. So for days, friends had been had found her phone was just ringing and ringing with no answer. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, three days after their murders on Sunday, a friend finally decided to drop by and let Dolores know her phone service was out and found her body outside her garage lying in a pool of dried blood. Whoa. So... Police arrived a very short time later on high alert. Mm -hmm. No one knew if the person who shot Dolores was still in the house. And more than a few people suspected Janie had snapped and killed her mother. So people were saying that to the police. With reason? What has Janie done that would... I don't know. They're like, Janie's in the house. She's always there with coffee. Maybe Janie snapped and killed her mother. That's just something that they thought maybe. All right. So Dolores was already badly decomposed after laying out in the hot sun for the better part of three days. Inside, investigators found Dolores' dogs. They had poofed and peed all over the house, but they were still alive. And they found Janie face down in the sunroom, a space Dolores had named the French Room and decorated with wicker furniture and beaded curtains. Janie was barefoot in lounging clothes with plastic curlers in her hair. She had been shot once in the back and then again in the back of the head. The bullet had driven one of the curlers into her skull, making it clear at that point that this wasn't a murder-suicide. This was a double homicide. So on the evening of August 24th, back in Albuquerque, Tom, Kathy, and the boys had just come back from a lakefront adventure to the news Janie and Dolores had been murdered. And as Tom wrestled with this, you know, overwhelming tragedy, it dawned on him that with both his sister and mother dead, he was about to inherit a huge sum of money. He was now like a millionaire and potentially in a lot of danger. So the last thing Tom did that night before flying out to Kentucky was have his lawyers draw up trusts for the boys in Mm -hmm. case anything happened to him, making sure that Susie would not see a penny of that money. Mm. 
He might have also considered like getting some security or something. I'm, you know, he's probably next. Yeah, maybe or maybe not. So that same night, Susie called her lawyer hysterical to tell him the news. Tom's mother and sister had been murdered in a gangland style shooting over money Tom was owed to the mafia. And she needed the boys to come home immediately as she was sure they were also targets. Mm-hmm. Well, how does she know? Well, that's exactly what her lawyer was asking. I mean, at that point, uh-huh. there was no details of the killing at all released. And he was like, why would she call saying this is the style of killing? Like what gang style killing? Mm. Dolores' body was found on top of the Sunday paper with a Bible scattered next to her. So that combined with the decomposition indicated she was clearly killed on a Sunday. It looked as if the killer hid behind one of the cars in the driveway, taking Dolores by surprise with high-speed bullets at close range. And it seemed Janie had been doing their like ritual of picking up dog poop with a tissue in the yard, and she was surprised by the killer and shot in the back while trying to get inside the house. It wasn't completely sure who was shot first. I think that the idea was Dolores was. But it was clear that Janie had been chased around the house by the killer. There was blood spatter indicating that she had paused at the phone in the kitchen. And then Mm -hmm. again by the alarm system near the linen closet. But she hadn't succeeded in using either of them to call for help. Janie had run around the house and gotten trapped in the French room where there was no exit. Except for the way she had come in through the master bedroom. So the killer had carefully, after the shootings, carefully collected all the bullet casings, but investigators found a small bullet that looked like it had come from a military assault rifle. Mm. There was also a grease print of that style of weapon on the bedspread where the gunman had put down the weapon to look through a jewelry box. Nothing valuable was taken. Instead, both Janie and Dolores' jewelry boxes had just been dumped on their beds, And there was no evidence of sexual assault. So the general consensus amongst investigators was that this was the work of a professional hitman staged Mm. to look like a robbery gone bad. Yeah. Investigators found some financial documents that showed large cash payments from Dolores to her son, Tom. And in Dolores's will, uh, it left almost everything to Janie. So it left half the cash to Tom and then the house cars and the other half the cash to Janie. Mm -hmm. So they were saying maybe there's some sort of favoritism there. Meaning um, Tom's a suspect or something? Right. Okay. And they also found records showing that Helen Stewart was working as Dolores's maid, something that stood out given that Helen had recently been peripherally involved in a recent murder trial. Helen's boyfriend had murdered her uncle a few years back, and Helen had supported her murdering boyfriend through the trial and in prison. So off the bat, it seemed like Helen didn't have a big problem with murdering. <laughs> it was like, keep an eye on her. Also, her family, the Stewart family, was always up to some sort of petty trouble. So uh-huh. they kept an eye on her. Um, but initially, their number one suspect was Tom Lynch, the one who would stand to gain the most financially from the deaths of his sister and his mother. Mm-hmm. Oldham County was buzzing with gossip. And because this wasn't like a murdery town, Oldham was rural, quiet, dairy and horse farming area for decades, you know. Um, until the early 1970s when wealthy people like Dolores and her husband Chuck flooded the area from Louisville, escaping city life. Yeah. I was not expecting this. There's, 
I did not. I didn't. I did not see Dolores getting murdered. R.I.P. Same with Janie. Yeah, Janie. Janie. Yeah. R.I.P. Janie. Yeah. So anyway, it wasn't a big like crime forward area. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. Right. Uh, there was like literally one spot that was known for poverty, like an old burnt out resort area mm-hmm. called Louis Villa, an area kind of similar to the deteriorating mining towns that dotted Kentucky. And had a reputation for minor crimes, but this was not at all like what happened. So where did Helen's boyfriend kill her uncle? Probably in Louisville. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, And like we said, Dolores had a rep, right? So even Mm. after she moved to the more remote location where they got their their big house, Dolores was well known across the county. More than a few neighbors were quoted in the press saying stuff like, Dolores put into things that were none of her damn business. She could (laughs) nag the living hell out of you. One of Janie's old boyfriends told a local paper Dolores was a pain in the ass and that she was the kind of person you'd invite to leave and then take an aspirin and sit down to rest for an hour or two. But you know, shooting her in the head is a bit extreme. <laughs> just a like, bit I extreme? I can't believe people are telling the paper this. It's all just quotes from like the Greensboro news or whatever. God dang. Uh, so there were a couple of oddities early on in the case. Although mm-hmm. the jewelry boxes had been dumped out by the killer or killers, nothing was taken except for a turquoise cross that Dolores always wore around her neck and likely was wearing on the Sunday she was killed. Dolores's personal handgun was also missing. Another totally weird thing was that Dolores randomly had a blood alcohol level of 0.6. So for her size, it was mm-hmm. about the equivalent of like two drinks or like one and a half drinks. Yeah. And Dolores wasn't a, known as a drinker. It, investigators found two beer cans in her bedroom trash. But aside for how seemingly uncharacteristic it would have been for Dolores to day drink before church, two beers would have burned off by the time she got home after that afternoon if she had drank them before she went to church. Oh, she's been she's been hiding alcohol. Well, they say the only way timing-wise she could have gotten a blood alcohol that level that high by the time she was killed was that she had had a couple of drinks in her car while driving home, and there's no evidence of that, but mm-hmm. that was kind of an odd thing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the day after the bodies were discovered, investigators entered Dolores's garage to find six small crosses made out of palm leaves arranged on the garage floor. The crosses weren't there the day before. It was some scary like Blair Witch thing. And it scared investigators so bad they legit like ran out of the house thinking there was someone in the house. You know, they called Helen Stewart and were like, were you in the house? And she says, no, but I'm pretty sure this house is haunted. And police re-entered the home to search for anyone hiding, but they found nothing. Uh, The palm leaf thing was never solved. The booze thing was never solved. But later that same day, investigators found Dolores's missing gun in a bathroom cabinet. So is palm leaves strictly Catholic? I don't know. I'm just saying you got Fritz out here. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, But she's a she's isn't Episcopalian kind of Catholic. Yeah, kind of. I don't remember. We actually I think Episcopalians have palm leaves, too. Yeah. I don't know. You're Episcopalian. I can't remember. Up. I think so. <laughs> OK. 
So Tom was questioned three times by Kentucky investigators. Not only had Tom inherited a large sum of money as a result of the deaths, there were rumors that he may have been a heavy gambler, right? Right. Involved in some sort of shady underworld people. And Tom was so upset, or for whatever reason, his polygraph tests kept coming back inconclusive. Mm -hmm. But... The large sums of money transferred to Tom's bank account from his mother turned out to be for expenses related to his divorce. And there wasn't any evidence of any other chunks of money gambled away or missing. Mm -hmm. And Tom had a tight alibi. He'd been on a fishing trip with his family and several friends during the time frame of the murders. So in the end, Tom was cleared and actually, you know, rightly considered another potential target for the killers. So they were like, be careful, you know? Yeah. And then after six weeks, investigators ruled out all potential subjects. It wasn't Helen, you know, it wasn't anybody that they had thought of. They offered a reward to get more information, but they got mostly crackpots. There was one tip that came in that seemed like it really had potential. There's a kid named Jason King who had escaped from a juvenile facility the weekend Dolores and Janie were killed. And Dolores' friends from the Little Colonel players remembered Mm -hmm. her saying she was helping a troubled young man named Jason. She was Mm. like, oh, this kid, I'm trying to help him get on his feet. Yeah. Jason King was known for playing a game called Invasion with his friends that he kind of loosely called a gang where they would all take acid, break into rich people's houses, rearrange their furniture and slip out undetected. They just like spray their symbol and spray paint on the wall. (laughs) That is both... completely like deranged and harmless at the same time. Right. Well, then they'd also bury neighborhood pets with just their heads poking out of the ground and King would run them over with a lawnmower. So oh. He was, oh, Jason. He was Jason. absolutely so he's, a psychopath. The okay. King owned an M16 assault rifle, oh, the same gun, uh, like type of gun uh-huh. used in the lynch killing. Uh-huh. And he bragged that he had killed people. Like he said he killed people in one of the invasion gang's hideouts and they had a hideout that was about six miles from the lynch house in a cave. Mm -hmm. But that evidence didn't play out and King was eliminated as a suspect, leaving investigators with no leads at all. So while the investigation fizzled out, Dolores and Janie's deaths actually resulted in one good thing. It reconnected Tom with Bob and Florence Newsom. Mm -hmm. The Newsoms sent flowers to the lynch funerals and Tom used that little opening to try and reestablish communication because Tom really hadn't spoken with Florence and Bob for years since his separation from Susie in 1980. Right. These are his in-laws. Right. And basically no one in the Sharp family really knew anything about Susie and Tom's relationship falling apart other than what Susie had told them, right? Which mm-hmm. was that Tom was some sort of mobbed up, mobbed up demon from hell, right? Tom and Kathy were trying to figure out how to untangle this mess, right? Mm -hmm. Like with Susie. They were doing a little research to try to figure out how to build better shared custody situations. Mm -hmm. And most of what they were learning hinged on like this idea of cooperation from extended family, friends, teachers, like all the people in the boy's life rather than focusing all their energy on like Susie and the nuclear family. Sure. 
Tom had just ended his second summer with the boys and he was really deeply disturbed by like the fistfuls of vitamins they were prescribed and their long nails and dirty teeth. And, well, and getting their, these, their moles cut out yeah, and everything. And they seemed so scared of like defying their mother in any uh-huh. way. It just felt like it was really unhealthy. Yeah. And by this point, Susie had gone completely no contact with her parents and it had been months since Bob and Florence had even been able to see the boys. So You know, for Tom, it felt like the flowers were a sign that they were looking for a connection. Sure. So Tom started by writing a letter. And his main points basically were like, with the death of his mother, he felt the boys should have like contact with their only remaining grandparents, Bob and Florence. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, Susie's hostility towards him and now, you know, her extended family was only harming the boys. You know, Florence Newsom wrote back. And she wrote back something positive. So things sort of moved on from there. Nothing like totally affirmative, but yeah. sort of good to hear from you. Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh. So with Bob and Florence on board, Tom started writing to other influential Sharp family members. Susie's favorite aunt, big judge Susie, Louise Sharp, the keeper of the original Sharp family home. Right, just right. trying to get a picture of the boys' lives there and sort of whether there was a glimmer of hope that the family would support his bid for expanded custody. Mm -hmm. In November 1984, Tom and Kathy came to North Carolina for a five-day visit to meet the boys' teachers and friends and actually start being involved in their day-to-day lives. So when they showed up, Susie was irate. And when Tom came to pick up Jim and John for the week. She literally threw their suitcases at him, Mm -hmm. but she couldn't do anything to stop the visit. And right off the bat, Tom saw red flags everywhere. The boys were clearly neglected. Their shoes were way too small. They had dirty hair. They were adorned with all this religious jewelry. And then he finds out, you know, he realizes that this weird cousin Fritz is clearly living with Susie and the boys. Yeah. So the morning that Kathy and Tom came to pick up the boys, that's like in the first week of November in 1984, Susie left her apartment in Greensboro and went to pay her brother Rob a rare visit. Rob was still in recovery for his alcoholism, but he had been forced to switch his careers entirely. After getting sober... Rob developed this thing called organic brain syndrome that I had never heard before. Okay. So basically like when some sometimes when people abruptly stop doing drugs or drinking alcohol mm-hmm. after doing it a lot for a long time, yeah. their brains have this kind of abrupt intense cognitive decline. Mm. So Rob was sober and practicing law in North Carolina after he'd lost his big oil company job in Texas when his brain just started feeling scrambled. And so despite he went to Dr. Klenner uh-huh. and he started doing mega dose vitamin of treatments, course, of course. right? But Rob's mental decline continued until he made so many mistakes while practicing law. He actually had to give up his oh, license. Yeah. But after that, he took a job as an addiction counselor and slowly regained his brain function. So Rob was working in his office when he was surprised by Susie. And she was all keyed up, frantic, scared, furious. She was just going off. She said, Cousin Fritz has connections in the CIA and has access to Tom's file. And Tom was in the mafia and he had come to North Carolina to kidnap the boys. And she's like, I got this gun for protection. And she like whips out this gun out her purse and he's just, <laughs> he's like, whoa, like, Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, not even remotely aware that this is where she was at at this right. point. Mm-hmm. So after Susie leaves the office, Rob calls his parents who call an emergency meeting with Tom and Kathy. There is still some hesitancy on the part of the Newsoms to like go against one of their own. Mm-hmm. So and also like the Sharps are like that, right? You're right. Protecting closing ranks. So the meeting was more of a guarded, careful exchange of selective information mm-hmm. rather than a call to action. Mm-hmm. But even so, Tom really got the sense that Susie's parents, particularly Bob Newsom, was just sick of Susie's like wacky, hostile energy. Yeah, and is and maybe they're a little concerned for their grandchildren. Yeah, like very concerned. Right. Oh, I, mean, I would hope so. Specifically with the vitamin stuff, like they they were yeah. really worried about that. Yeah. Kathy and Tom made their rounds with the other sharps. They had like a lunch and really talked to them about like how they want the sharps in the boys' lives. Mm-hmm. And they ended their time in North Carolina with lunch at the with the boys at their school. And John cried so much as Tom was leaving the school that his teacher sent John home to be with Tom for their last remaining hours of the mm. visit. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah. After the North Carolina visit, there were more lunches and tense meetings among the Sharps. And the result was that Thanksgiving and Christmas passed with Susie being somewhat normal and no sign of Fritz. So she kind of lifted this no contact thing Mm -hmm. and started taking the boys around her parents again. Tom and Kathy's visit seemed to scare her straight or something. Plus, her attorney advised that it would be better for her in future custody battles if she reestablished ties with the family. Mm Little did anyone know that Fritz was very much still around. In fact, he was now posing as Susie's husband and introducing himself to people as John and Jim's father. Uh Uh-oh. At Susie's apartment, Fritz had continued his father's tradition of covering the windows with blankets and filling every free space with his junk and papers, vitamins, and medical equipment. In the spring of 1985, Tom compiled all his correspondence with the Sharps and like all of these letters and stuff, and he sent it to his lawyer, starting the work on a new custody agreement. In May 1985, Bob Newsom agreed to help Tom in his bid for extended custody, and a hearing was set for May 23rd. Bob was served a subpoena to testify on Tom's behalf in mid-May. So, like, this thing is, the wheels are starting to turn. Yeah. And, you know, reluctantly, he called his daughter, Susie, and let her know in a private phone call the next morning he'd be testifying on behalf of Tom. Mm-hmm. That same afternoon that Susie had her phone call with her father, Bob, Susie walked into her lawyer's office in tears, holding a plastic bag containing two stuffed animals with their necks slit open. She said that back in March, after having an argument with Tom over the phone, she came home from class to find the two stuffed animals, the toys that the boys usually brought with them to Albuquerque, cut open and lying in the apartment. Oh, like a threat? Mm Mm-hmm. And she said there weren't any signs of forced entry, but she found the spare key to her apartment that the super usually kept was missing. Then she said a man called the apartment and said, quote, two down, two to go. Somebody like an anonymous person on a phone call, Mm -hmm. which she felt as clearly a death threat against her sons. And now she said she's afraid to fight Tom at the custody hearing in case there was some sort of mob related retaliation. So Susie's lawyer had no idea what to make of all this. He was kind of like, did you call the police? No. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And he kind of like redirected the conversation to talk about like their strategy for the upcoming custody. Uh-huh. Like I'm not really giving this a time time of day. Why don't we just get back on track? Kind, kind of, of like he was just like, let's just kind of steer it over to more practical matters. Mm. He did. He said she seemed to calm down and then she left. But there okay. wasn't like this sort of got to call the police. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so on May 19th, Four days before the custody hearing, around 10 o'clock at night, Homer Sutton, longtime friend and doctor to the Newsom family and his wife, drove up Rob Newsom's grandmother's driveway in Winston-Salem, right? The place where his parents go on the weekends to visit their grandmother. Yeah, Hattie. Mm -hmm. So Rob Newsom had called from Reedsville worried about his parents. Rob and his family were still living temporarily with the Newsoms after Rob was fired the year prior. Right. But Bob and Florence were actually in the process of leaving their home in Reedsville and moving in with Bob's mother, Hattie, about mm -hmm. 30 minutes away near Winston-Salem. I don't like where this is going. Hattie was getting too old to live alone, and the family had spent the entire year renovating the home to accommodate Bob and Florence, who spent most weekends with Hattie taking care of loose ends and visiting. So Rob hadn't been able to get a hold of his parents all day. They were supposed to have picked up his youngest daughter, Paige, from a wedding. Muriel. You, <laughs> just gonna are, you, you. are you kidding me right now? And this is only part three. There's like way more stuff. That they killed. Just let me finish, Nick. You're making me laugh at this super sad part. So he was supposed to pick up Paige from a wedding on their way back into town that Sunday, but something was lost in communication and the little girl had been stranded, left stranded at this wedding. So thinking his parents and grandmother were all out in Hattie's yard chatting or maybe staying late at church and just forgot the pickup, Rob drove to get Paige, and then came back home to wait for Florence and Bob. Eventually, around 10 p.m., Rob decided to call Dr. Sutton in Winston-Salem to just drive over and check on his grandmother's house. So from the outside of the elegant White House, it was clear the lights were on inside, and Bob and Florence's Buick was parked in the driveway. Dr. Sutton and his wife went around the house to enter through the back patio like usual and found broken window glass on the cement outside. <sighs> Through the window, they could see Hattie on the couch in front of the TV wrapped in a blanket and Florence lying casually on the carpet. It took a minute to register the stillness of the house and then to register the blood on the floor. So unsure of who was still lurking on the property, the couple ran down to their car and drove off into the night to find help. And this is where we'll pick up in our next episode. What, with the news that these three people are killed in their house? Grandma Hattie, Bob, and Florence are all dead in this house. That's where we're going to pick up in part four, Muriel. Oh, really? That's where we'll pick up. Part four opens. Well, you... <laughs> the... Well, I guess I'll save my RIPs for, you know... What is this going to be a twist? Is there a twist to this? Susie well, and Fritz know. are just out here murdering their all their family members. So that's why we talk about all these people. So we get to know who they are and then you kill them. You kill them I didn't personally. do it, Nick. I'm you just did. telling you the story. What happened? The end. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. 
Muriel did all the research, writing, hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded here at my parents' house. Okay, to help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you can sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who would enjoy it as well. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Other great ways to help our show is by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rating us on Spotify. Connecting with us on social media. Plus, we love hearing from you. Our DMs are open and you can email us too. You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode or you can visit murielsmurders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. That's it. We'll see you next time. And it's happening right now. So just okay. keep pressing play. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>